Sup, you beautiful bastards. Hope you have a fantastic Monday. Welcome back to The Philip DeFranco Show. And, and a quick note before we get started, in case you missed it, last week was the first week of our brand new schedule. And that being in addition to the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Philip DeFranco Show you've come to expect. We had a Friday Philip DeFranco Show and a Sunday video. On Friday, because there's been a lot of misinformation and confusion around this, we talked about what a vaccine for coronavirus could look like, what the timeline realistically could be, other treatments that are being talked about. Very interesting, very important, highly recommend it. Also on Sunday, we talked about a bit of non coronavirus news. And specifically during this time, there is a lot that could slip through the cracks. And around that, we talked about the Earn It Act. It's a potentially devastating move to private speech, and I wanted to make sure that you were aware of this. And main thing, after today's show, if you want to watch them, I'll include them in the outro card as well as the top links in the description down below. But with all of that said, this is the Philip DeFranco Show. Buckle up, hit that like button, and let's just jump into it. And the first thing we're going to talk about today is kind of positive news. I say kind of because obviously we're living through a global pandemic right now, but there are people trying to help. Whether it be the likes of Rihanna's Charitable Foundation, the Clara Lionel Foundation, donating $5 million to coronavirus response effort. And among the celebrity crowd, we've seen broad donations as well as very specific ones. Broad, you have the likes of, you know, Ryan Reynolds, Blake Lively, donating $1 million to Feeding America and Food Banks Canada, as well as Russell Wilson and Ciara donating 1 million meals to Food Lifeline. And they are by no means the only ones there. Also on a more personal personal level, we've seen the rise of the Do Your Part Challenge. You people like Britney Spears announcing on Instagram. So our world is going through such hard times right now, and my sister just nominated me to um, help people, whether it's with food or I'm getting your child diapers or whatever it is, DM me and I will help you out. Where she announced that she was picking three fans to help out during this difficult time. Also, you had the likes of Jeffree Star cash-apping people, money, some screenshots showing $250 to just random people. Also, a quick note I want to make about Jeffree Star here. People have been talking about Jeffree Star for a number of reasons over the past 36 hours, not just because of the donation, but because this clip went viral. And dark people are sick! The main tweet that blew up with this clip said, oh my god, I can't believe Jeffree would call me a dark person and say that dark people are sick. Like, oh my god, this is so hurtful. Right, and that clip just went viral, but this is the actual full in context clip. You don't support me, but you want to you take my money? Like, this shit is so f- And dark people are sick! Right, and this appears to be in reference to people he says that hate him asking for money. So he wasn't saying dark people are sick. He was saying two different statements. This shit is fucked up and dark. And also, people are sick. One, to get a head start on the people that have not seen the full clip going, oh my God, I can't believe you didn't talk about the other Jeffree Star thing. And also, two, at a time where we are all solely focused on the coronavirus, I think the fake news for other stuff, it's gonna be easier for that to blow up. But that said, the last bit of good news I wanna touch on has to do with medical supplies. Right, so if you don't know, hospitals around the globe have been working tirelessly to treat growing cases of of coronavirus, all while dealing with shortages of masks, gloves, and other essential medical supplies. And interestingly enough, we're now seeing several TV shows stepping in to do what they can to support those on the front lines of this pandemic. Station 19 reportedly had around 300 of those N95 masks that they donated to their local fire station. And reportedly those masks were used in a place where firefighters were having to reuse masks because of the shortage. ABC's Grey's Anatomy donated its backstock of gowns and gloves from its costume department to local LA hospitals. Meanwhile, The Good Doctor donated surgical masks, surgical gowns, face shields, soap, disposable booties, disposable isolation suits, latex gloves, medical caps. You also had New Amsterdam and the resident donating what they could as well. We've also seen a number of businesses changing what they do to see if they could help. For example, brands like L'Oreal Group, Cody Inc., perfume makers like Givenchy and Dior, they're now reportedly using their facilities to produce hand
hand sanitizers to give to French and European health authorities for free. The clothing company Hanes retrofitting factories to make masks. Tito's Vodka announced, Our distillery has been working hard to get all of the pieces in place to begin production on 24 tons of hand sanitizer that adheres to industry and governmental guidance. And notably, Tito's is not alone there. They're joining other liquor companies, both small and large, that are pivoting to hand sanitizer. Reportedly, you have companies like Apple donating 2 million respirator masks. Facebook announcing they're giving away 720,000 masks to health workers. Apparently, the company initially bought these in case of wildfires in California. With Zuckerberg saying the company is also working on sourcing millions of more to donate. Tesla and its CEO, Elon Musk, saying that the company is making ventilators, saying that he expects to have over 1,200 to distribute this week. And something that I do want to say, that, you know, this is not a definitive list of all the celebrities and all the companies and all the people that are trying to help. But I did want to make sure today that I took a moment to highlight some because I know now the news is very uncertain and at times frightening and overwhelming. But there still are people trying to help small and large, and that's not including just, I know that people use the word heroes too much these days. There are genuine heroes from the most apparent, right? Our doctors, our nurses, our people in the healthcare industry, elder care. But honestly, all the way to, to the people that have enabled us, even though life has changed, the people who have enabled certain facets to continue. People working at gas stations, grocery stores, convenience stores, pharmacies. I also think of all the people involved with deliveries. And once again, even that doesn't touch on everyone that is really essential to life so that it doesn't all fall apart right now. Yeah, main point here, I just want to take a moment to try to highlight some of the good that we're seeing, also note some of the good that it's not always ever present, especially because the news in general and what we're going to be diving into is at the very least concerning, if not uh, inherently negative news. Which on the note of concerning news, let's talk about the news involving the coronavirus and the Department of Justice. Because according to a report from Politico published on Saturday, the Department of Justice has asked Congress to grant it certain new emergency powers. And among those would be the ability for Attorney General Bill Barr to ask the chief judge of any district court to indefinitely pause court proceedings. Quote, whenever the district court is fully or partially closed by virtue of any natural disaster, civil disobedience, or other emergency situation. And further, that proposal would apply to, quote, any statutes or rules of procedure otherwise affecting pre-arrest, post-arrest, pre-trial, trial, and post-trial procedures in criminal and juvenile proceedings, and all civil process and proceedings. Right, so kind of a mouthful there, but if this went into effect, it could have some serious implications. Now, the first and biggest here is that it would grant chief judges the power to detain people indefinitely without trial. So that, notably, would be a suspension of habeas corpus, which is your right to appear in front of a judge and ask to be released after being arrested. Now, for its part, the DOJ is justifying this request by saying that currently, judges can already pause judicial proceedings in an emergency. However, this new legislation would allow them to handle emergencies, quote, in a consistent manner. And as Norman L. Reimer, executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, explains it, not only would it be a violation of habeas corpus, but it says affecting pre-arrest. So that means you could be arrested and never brought before a judge until they decide that the emergency or the civil disobedience is over. I find it absolutely terrifying. Especially in a time of emergency, we should be very careful about granting new powers to the government. With Reimer also adding that the possibility of chief judges suspending court rules in an emergency without a clear end in sight was deeply disturbing. So there is that, but it's also not the only thing the DOJ has asked for. It's also asking Congress to suspend the statute of limitations for criminal investigations and civil proceedings during national emergencies and for one year following the end of the national emergency. Right, and so part of the fear here is, let's say you have a person who's been arrested but not formally charged with a crime. Under this new law, they would still be able to be charged later, even if their statute of limitations would have normally expired, but that would also mean they would continue to be under arrest until that charge was made. And also asking to change the federal rules of criminal procedure in some cases to expand the use of video conference hearings. Right, so essentially, under current law, if a person consents to it, they can appear at their hearing over a video conference call and have their charges read that way. But the DOJ is actually now asking Congress to let some of those hearings happen without defendant's consent. And regarding that, we saw Reimer say, if it were with the consent of the accused person, it would be fine. But if it's not with the consent of the accused person, it's a terrible road to go down. We have a right to public trials. People have a right to be present in court. And 
finally, another big DOJ request is that they're asking Congress to pass a law saying that immigrants who test positive for COVID-19 cannot qualify for asylum. And that comes as the Trump administration has already announced it will start barring entry to migrants at the southern border. And notably, that already includes asylum seekers there. Now, a big thing to note, overall, this whole thing has been highly controversial, eliciting a number of notable reactions, including former RNC chair and former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, Michael Steele, saying, no, this is not a slope we wanna get on. Suspending constitutional rights with this crew? Oh, hell no. And adding, I can't stress enough to my fellow citizens, no virus nor efforts to prevent its spread means the government gets to trample on our rights. AG Barr wants to suspend habeas corpus. This does not end well. Steele also referencing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who on Saturday said he was considering moving people to isolation shelters if they show symptoms or test positive for COVID-19. We also saw former White House Chief Ethics Lawyer Richard Painter saying, giving Bill Barr authority to suspend habeas corpus and other civil liberties is just plain nuts. He should resign. Republican Utah Senator Mike Lee added, over my dead body, Donald Trump, please refute and disavow this immediately. Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez also expressing concern. I think it is um, abhorrent. This is not a time, and you know, it, it is, there is a long history in this country and in other countries of using emergencies as times to really start to encroach upon people's civil rights. And in fact, this is a time when we need them the absolute most. We have to keep an eye out for these kind of authoritarian and, and frankly, for, for these, this expansion of and rather, and suspension of rule of law. But at the same time, we've seen the DOJ defending these requests. With spokesperson Carrie Kupek outlining the DOJ's reasoning, saying there has been some confusion, RE reports about DOJ asking Congress for certain, quote, emergency powers. This was triggered by Congress asking DOJ for suggested proposals necessary to ensure that federal courts would be able to administer fair and impartial justice during a pandemic. Kupek also saying that this draft proposal was, quote, developed in consultation with Congress and federal judiciary to help federal judges more consistently manage cases within their districts and protect interests of justice during this national emergency. Because of pandemic-related measures, courts are closing and grand juries are not meeting. That means prosecutors may not be able to indict criminals before a statute of limitations expires, or dangerous criminals who have been arrested may be released because of time limits. The QPEC then saying that the authority would end once the national emergency was over if a chief justice found that emergency conditions were no longer affecting the federal courts. And QPEC ended this by saying, bottom line, the proposed legislative text confers powers upon judges. It does not confer new powers upon the executive branch. These provisions are designed to empower the courts to ensure the fair and effective administration of justice. So there's that. Now, as far as if this would pass, you never fully know, but right now it does seem highly unlikely. You've got a Democratic-led House. There was a huge wave of criticism and concern. But for now, we have to wait and see. And along with this story, I do pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts when you hear the DOJ requesting this? And then let's talk about a question that has maybe popped into your head as you stare into the microwave heating up, what, the 15th? Taquito that for some reason you're heating up one at a time because yeah, when I'm at home, all of a sudden I have way more willpower to not eat my feelings. I'm projecting. The question though is how did we get here? We're talking about this because we have some new information about all of this, how the virus spread and why it was not contained. So the New York Times did a thorough visual media piece that laid out a full timeline from the diseases spread in Wuhan to it becoming a full-blown global pandemic. And so it starts out by saying, it seems simple. Stop travel, stop the virus from spreading around the world. Here's why that didn't work. So when it started back in Wuhan, there were only a few cases that quickly turned to dozens by the end of December, with doctors only knowing the patient had some kind of viral pneumonia that was not responsive to usual remedies. But going on to say the true size of the outbreak was much larger even then, an invisible network of nearly 1,000 cases or perhaps several times more. Because on average, each sick person infected two or three others. In China, they didn't alert the World Health Organization about public risk until December 31st, calling the disease preventable and controllable. But then there's this crucial turning point for the virus, Lunar New Year. And so they have this map showing how many people moved throughout the country on January 1st, noting that throughout the 
whole of the month, seven million people left Wuhan. Meaning you had tons and tons of movement from the center of the outbreak. And this infected thousands of travelers and started local outbreaks all over China. And so by February 4th, this is how many cases there were. And it's important to note here that the big clusters are near often travel to places. And according to the Times, 85% of travelers went undetected, which is how we get to international spread. So by the end of January, Wuhan was on lockdown and travel bans were getting set in place. But as the Times notes here, it was too late. Outbreaks were already growing in over 30 cities across 26 countries, most seeded by travelers from Wuhan. And what we ended up seeing is that by March, it made its way to Italy, South Korea, Iran, and more. And China was in fact no longer the driver of the spread. As China started systematically testing, tracing, and isolating patients, new cases there declined dramatically, showing that it was possible to slow the virus. And adding similar measures slowed the spread in Singapore, Hong Kong, and South Korea. Which brings us to the United States where testing is slim. Because by the time that Trump started responding with things like European travel bans and saying things like, the virus will not have a chance against us, major cities here already had outbreaks. But as noted, by then the virus had a secure foothold in this country. And it continued to spread locally throughout parts of Seattle, New York City, across the country, once again, outpacing efforts to stop it. Now, another thing of note that's come out is yesterday it was reported that the United States actually got rid of a CDC expert in China months before the outbreak. And according to reports, the position that was removed belonged to Dr. Linda Quick, who is an epidemiologist that trained Chinese field epidemiologists who were sent to the epicenter of outbreaks to help track, investigate, and contain diseases. And the impact this could have had has been kind of a, a subject of debate. Right? Some sources saying that her position could have been essential eyes and ears on the ground that could have alerted the United States of this outbreak and began developing a response earlier. Though the CDC has said that the elimination would have no impact on their ability to get information and, quote, had absolutely nothing to do with CDC not learning of cases in China earlier. Though, like we noted earlier, spread of the disease started at least in December in Wuhan. And Alex Azar, Secretary of Health and Human Services, said he learned of the virus in early January. And still, we saw a former CDC director maintain that if the role had existed, it is possible that we would know more today about how this coronavirus is spreading and what works best to stop it. We've all seen reports coming in that there could be another factor on potentially lagging information between the United States and China, and that is specifically President Donald Trump, with Dr. Robert Fontaine, who served in the removed advisor position years ago, saying that tensions between the Trump administration and Chinese leadership have grown over the past year, damaging collaboration. With him adding, the message from the administration was, don't work with China, they're our rival. And on par with that messaging, we've also seen several reports saying that the United States' relationship with China has weakened since the outbreak. And here, some noting Trump and other officials repeatedly calling the coronavirus or COVID-19 the Chinese virus. And you know, around this, we've seen a number of people condemning the use of this phrase or being stigmatizing and racist. Right? But at the very least, this constant use of the phrase kind of works hand in hand with Trump's efforts to blame China for the severity of the outbreak. Right, Saying that China didn't properly handle their response, allowing it to travel. But China has thrown blame right back at the United States, saying that leaders did not take it seriously despite several warnings. And the thing is, this divide is approaching at an incredibly consequential time. Right, China and the United States are the two largest economies in the world, both facing varying levels of uncertainty because of this pandemic. There are understandable fears of a global recession. And as Dr. Myra Rahooper, a fellow in Asia studies at the Council on Foreign Relations told The Hill, this is one of these catastrophic earth-shattering moments that have the potential to pull two otherwise rivals together to provide necessary leadership at a time of crisis, and it appears to be pushing them even further apart. Right, so that's the discussion of timelines, blame, relationships. As far as the now, it seemingly is the everyday top-level updates. Worldwide, as far as 2 p.m. Eastern time, we had 367,457 cases of the coronavirus, 16,130 
413 deaths. In the United States, we saw 41,511 cases, the number of deaths at 499. But of course, the asterisk we always have to add to US numbers is there are just not enough tests for people to take, so we do not know how widespread this is. But even with that being the case, the United States is now third worldwide with only China and Italy having reported more COVID-19 infections. Though around testing, we are seeing increased capacity for testing as more commercial labs pledge to increase production. On Sunday, we saw President Trump activate the National Guard to help in Washington, California, and New York. We've also seen a number of states, including Ohio and Louisiana, ordering citizens to stay at home. Also, we saw the governor of Hawaii over the weekend announce a mandatory 14-day quarantine order for all travelers newly arriving in the state. This also including returning residents, and this would be effective midnight on Thursday. Also, as I was finishing up today's show, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a UK lockdown. And then finally, let's talk about the potential economic impact on the United States here, what happens to your everyday American and what could be done to help. So right now, some experts believe that this could cost the United States 5 million or more US jobs with a loss in gross domestic product of 1.5 trillion. And so as we all look to the future, which is very uncertain, and you, you see people losing jobs, losing hours, worried you may lose yours, there's understandably been a lot of focus on the massive stimulus bill in Congress right now. And that stimulus bill is why you may be seeing the hashtags trending, Democrats are destroying America, and Moscow Mitch slush fund. So last night, the US Senate failed to pass a 1.8 trillion dollar stimulus bill set to help prop up the economy as the coronavirus pandemic continues. The bill, which would be one of the largest stimulus packages in U.S. history, was proposed by Mitch McConnell back on Thursday. And after a few days of negotiations, McConnell brought it to the floor for a vote yesterday. And there, it was shot down by Democrats with a vote of 47 to 47 entirely along party lines, falling way short of the 60 votes needed to pass. And the thing is, this was not completely unexpected because there's been a lot of debate around this specific legislation, with Democrats saying they oppose it because they believe that it does too much to help businesses and not enough for everyday people and hospitals. And very notably, this bill would provide about $250 billion to give direct payouts to households of about $1,200 for each adult to $500 for each child, with those payments phasing out for people with incomes over $75,000. It would also include around $100 billion for hospitals and about $250 billion to help state unemployment insurance programs. But by contrast, the bill would create a $500 billion loan program for businesses, cities, and states while giving another $350 billion to small businesses. But the Democrats don't just have problems with how much is going to businesses and corporations, they also object to the lack of of oversight, right? especially for the $500 billion lending program, which some Democrats are calling a slush fund. And that's because it would give the Treasury Department huge discretion to choose which firms get the money. And according to reports, some Democrats have alleged that it would basically give the department the sway to direct funds to companies that have appealed to the White House. And even beyond that, the bill doesn't have a lot of restrictions for companies that will receive that money, specifically when it comes to worker protections. For example, according to the Washington Post, companies are required to maintain the same employment levels that they had as of March 13th, to the extent practicable, but it does not define what practice means. And so as a result, some Democrats believe that without specific worker protections or any kind of oversight built into the legislation, companies who get the money could just fire their employees and pocket the taxpayer assistance, which would not only be a rather evil move, but it would also undermine what the federal aid is intended for, right? It's meant to help prop up the economy for now. But on the other side of this, you had Trump's Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin defending the package while speaking on Fox Business this morning, saying this is in corporate welfare, this helps all American workers. Notably there, Mnuchin has also said that the package is only designed to last for 10 to 12 weeks. President Trump, for his part, spoke about ongoing negotiations on this bill yesterday before the vote. Right now, they're not there. But I think that uh, the Democrats want to get there. And I can tell you for a fact, the Republicans want to get there. And I don't think anybody actually has a choice. Right, and so with all of this, we saw a lot of Republicans slamming Democrats, accusing them of holding up essential aid. Like McConnell, for example, who blamed Democrats last night while speaking on the Senate floor. And I want everybody to fully understand, if we aren't able to act tomorrow, it'll be because of our colleagues on the other side continuing to dicker when the country expects us 
to come together and address this problem. McConnell also appeared to blame Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi for derailing the process after he had a meeting with her, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy himself made a similar argument on Fox News this morning. Why would the Democrats hold it up in a moment of time that more people are getting sick? The continuity of government you want to keep together and we will, but what's more importantly, the, um, the millions of Americans out there that need our help today. But on the other side, we saw the Democrats defending their decision and continuing to argue that the bill was bad and was exploitation in a moment of crisis. We saw Schumer hit back at McConnell, accusing him of being the one that's playing partisan politics. Leader McConnell presented to us a highly partisan bill written exclusively by Republicans, and he said he would call a vote to proceed to it today. So who is being partisan? He knows darn well for this bill to pass, it needs both Democratic and Republican support. We all saw the likes of Kamala Harris criticizing the bill, saying McConnell's bill yesterday would hand corporations fistfuls of money without requiring them to protect their workers or keep people employed. It's this simple, we need to put people over profits. Elizabeth Warren hitting on similar points, tweeting millions may now lose their jobs. And Trump wants our response to be a half trillion dollar slush fund to boost favored companies and corporate executives while they continue to pull down huge paychecks and fire their workers. And the update to this situation is today, once again, the Senate was debating this bill on the floor. The bill failed to move forward again during a procedural vote, this time with 49 in favor and 46 against the stimulus. And while all of this is happening, we saw Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, say, the Senate Republicans' bill as presented puts corporations first, not workers and families. Today, House Democrats will unveil a bill that takes responsibility for the health, wages, and well-being of America's workers, the Take Responsibility for Workers and Families Act. And in the press release, it says, for our workers and small businesses, our bill requires that any corporation that takes taxpayer dollars must protect their workers' wages and benefits, not CEO pay, stock buybacks, or layoffs. It gives our small businesses fast relief with grants and loans to tide them through this crisis, and it strengthens unemployment insurance so that it can replace the average wages of our workers who are losing their jobs and hours. Among other notes, it says for our families, it gives direct payments to America's families in a robust way and strengthens child tax credits and the earned income tax credit. And there's more there. I'll link to the full press release down below. Obviously, the situation is still developing. It, it is frantic. It is chaotic. Hopefully, a compromise can be met that helps everyday people. Uh, but yeah, that's where we are right now. And of course, with this story or really anything else I talked about today, I'd love to know your thoughts in those comments down below. What do you hope to see happen? What do you think will happen? Also, uh, how is life for you right now? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. And that is where I'm going to end today's show. And hey, if you like this video, hit that like button. If you're new here, definitely hit that subscribe button. Ring that bell to turn on notifications for these daily videos. Also, if you're looking for more to watch, you can definitely check out that vaccine timeline or the Earn It Act video that we talked about earlier by just clicking or tapping right there. But with that said, of course, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow. I hope you like the video. Subscribe if you like it.